Good morning, everybody. All right, so we are, we're continuing, obviously, Jesus' life chronologically, and we come to a series of conversations and interactions that I'll admit aren't the first ones that spring to my mind when I think of Jesus interacting with people and who he talked to and what those conversations looked like. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at how Jesus interacted with the demons. And I don't mean just casting them out. I mean, how Jesus talked to the demons, how the demons talked to him, what those conversations looked like, and what we learned from that. Um, we'll be in Mark. The account shows up in two of the Gospels, Mark 1 and Luke 4. We'll read predominantly out of Mark because they parallel each other almost identically. Uh, but if you're curious to go back and read the second one later, it will be up on the screens, or it's Luke 4, 33 to 41. We're going to be in Mark 1, 21 through 34, if you want to turn there or if you just want to listen. Um, but at the, the idea of all of this is listen to how people interact with and respond to Jesus' authority. Mark 1, starting in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the account of this incredible love story that you have written from before time began. And the way that you love us and the means that you have provided us to know you more and to know you better. And so, God, as we enter this time, as we continue this worship through your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would teach us, that this wouldn't be anything I want to say, but that these would be your words, Lord. Let this be a time that we know you better so that we can live for you better, so that we can look more and more like you as you continually refine us. We give you this time. We ask that it would be an offering pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to point out about that, and this is where, as you, as you recall, throughout this series on Jesus' life, I've pointed out themes that we'll see continue to pop up. Think back with me to either, I think it was the second sermon when we looked at Jesus as a 12-year-old going, going into the temple. And I pointed out a detail that was in that, that I said, pay attention to this. This is a theme that we see throughout Jesus' life and ministry. When he was 12, teaching in the temple, it said they were all amazed by him. And we looked at this idea of we cease to be amazed by the person of Christ, right? And again, continuing throughout his ministry, we once again get to this account. And what do we see? We see that the people were amazed at him. But this time it adds a specific detail. It says they were amazed at his authority. 
I want to read some of the verses. This is Mark 1, 22 and 27. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And then 27, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. The people were blown away by the authority of Jesus. And they specifically compare and contrast it to the authority of their teachers, of their scribes. See, one of the most common ways for the people to teach in that day was to quote one another. So their scribes, their teachers in the synagogue would have quoted other scribes and other teachers and other Pharisees. Jesus didn't quote contemporaries because Jesus doesn't have contemporaries. Jesus doesn't have peers. Jesus didn't have anyone at that time who was equal to him in his authority. So he taught and spoke from his own authority, not quoting Joe down the road because he didn't need to. And this stood out to the people. This was noticeable to the people. The people knew that there was something different about the authority of Jesus. They knew his authority was different from what they were used to. And one of the main ideas that I come away with from this passage is that knowing is not enough. It's about more than just knowing. This life can't stop short at, well, I know this. It must go beyond that. Because the people knew that Jesus' authority was different on two different occasions. In the same verses, the same ideas pop up in Luke. But on two instances in this interaction, the people, they fully are aware and cognizant of the fact that Jesus has a different authority. And again, we see this about people throughout Scripture. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The people knew Jesus' authority was different, but that's not enough. And speaking of knowing his authority, look at the demons. This is fascinating. Look at how the demons interact with Jesus. This is Mark 1, 24 and 34. The people knew Jesus' authority was different. The demons knew Jesus' authority was divine. Verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Je oh man, Jesus of Nazareth. That's fun to say fast. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then verse 34, the second half. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The demons immediately, when Jesus comes to them, they recognize who this is. And that word for unclean spirits, it means morally unclean, morally impure. It means demons. So it'll say unclean spirits in a lot of translations. But they're talking about demons. And there are a couple things that are fascinating about this idea of the demons fully aware of Jesus' authority being divine. The first thing that stands out where it says, the demon says to him, what have you to do with us? So that language sounds a little stiff. A more modern translation will paraphrase that as, why are you interfering with our business? And what's that tell us? That tells us a couple things. That one, there are two kingdoms of this world and they are fundamentally, violently opposed to one another. Make no mistake, there are two kingdoms at a very real battle in this world that are at complete odds with one another. Why are you interfering with our business? There is a kingdom at work in this world for evil, and when Jesus walks into the room, that kingdom is aware of it. They are aware of the authority that has just come into the presence of this situation, and they want to know why are you interfering with us? We have to understand how real this is. And then secondly, 
in knowing the reality of this situation, understanding that there are two kingdoms violently at war with one another. I want to point out what the demon knows about Jesus. How does the demon address Jesus? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In other places, they say, the demons say, I know who you are, the Son of God. I know who you are, the Lord. The first thing that stands out to me, and it, uh, I've hit on this many, many times, and I will continue to hit on this many, many times, because this is, this is a passion point for me. But the first thing that stands out to me, who is more fundamentally opposed to Jesus? Who has been opposed to Jesus longer than the kingdom of hell? than demons. This is Jesus's, I mean, this is Satan and his demons. You can't get more divided than this. You can't go older than this. This is Jesus's biggest opponent. And the first thing his number one opponent says is, I know who you are, you're God. How utterly tragic and just evil is it that there are pastors and churches today saying that Jesus was not God? I've said this before, I will continue to say it again, because again, this is, a, this is a hill I will die on. If you are listening to a podcast, if you are listening to a sermon online, if you are watching a YouTube video, a Facebook video, if you're at a conference, I don't care where you are, if you are listening to someone claiming to speak the truth, and they say Jesus was not always God, get up and go out of the room. Be done with that crap. That is heresy. That is blasphemy. Have no tolerance for it. Anyone who says Jesus was not always God is not worth your time. You have no business listening to them. You have no business entertaining them and giving them a platform to speak on. If the demons are forced to acknowledge this, shame on any one of us who would say anything different. And the demons start off with, I know who you are. You are God. You are the Holy One. You are the Lord. And then as we talk about the reality of this, I want to talk a little bit about spiritual darkness and battle. Because this is very real, right? These are, these are people possessed and oppressed by demons interacting with Jesus. This is very much a reality of this world. There are two sides fighting. We were talking about it just this morning. I mean, just this morning with the worship team, we were talking about this. And I said, the enemy fights dirty. The enemy is going to go for every cheap shot, every low blow. He's going to go for whatever can derail a family in the most effective way. We have to understand that as much as, I mean, if we claim to believe in the forces of good and the power of good in this world, there is a corresponding force of evil and power of evil in this world. And I want you to understand, I don't want this to be something that our church takes lightly. The pendulum can swing too far in either direction. And I want this to be something that our church handles correctly with the gravity that it deserves, but understanding that Jesus is the final authority and that his name is the final authority. Let's look at a story that demonstrates this, this interaction of Jesus and demons, the authority of Jesus with the power of darkness. This is in Acts 19, starting in verse 13. And just some background. It's going to talk about itinerant traveling. It's going to talk about traveling exorcists, okay? We have to understand that there were people, and if this one passage, if this is something that's interesting to you, you've never, maybe, wow, I didn't realize that was in the Bible. I'd never considered that before. I've got a list of, I mean, this idea of traveling exorcists and people with power, this isn't the only time in the Bible it appears. I can give you a list 
of charlatans and witch doctor, I mean, whatever you want to label them as, I can give you a list of charlatans throughout Scripture who demonstrated signs and wonders, who performed signs and wonders. They performed these seemingly miraculous things. They did magic tricks, right? They did this stuff. But you have to understand that just because someone does something that seems like a sign and wonder does not automatically equate them with a follower of Christ. Performing a signs and wonders, that is not a be-all, end-all for this is a legitimate follower of Jesus. And that's something else that has really gotten convoluted today. And that is something that has become very celebrated is what can you perform? And we have to understand that that is not synonymous with an apostle, with a follower of Christ. Listen to Acts 19, starting in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They seek to invoke the name of Jesus over these evil spirits by saying, I call on Jesus, the one who Paul proclaims. I don't know Jesus personally. See, the way a lot of these exorcists worked is they knew they didn't have supreme authority and so they would just try to appeal to a higher spiritual being, right? If here's a, a demon oppressing a person, well, I'm going to call on whatever spiritual being is maybe a little bit higher than them. And in this case, Jesus. And so these traveling Jewish exorcists try to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest. We're not talking about outside the church. We're talking about faulty problems within those claiming to follow Christ, claiming to know God. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest, Sceva, were doing this. But the evil, listen to them, if you don't consider the reality of two kingdoms opposed to one another and authority being an issue when these two kingdoms confront each other, listen to this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. More modern translations will simplify that as the man in whom the demon was leapt on the seven of them and beat them to a pulp. This is not something to be taken lightly. The name of Jesus is not invoked as a party trick. The name of Jesus is not called upon because, well, I've heard of him. Let me see if I can get some of that power for myself. This is a very real deal. This authority between the two warring kingdoms. The man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And listen to the conclusion of this. I think this is a fascinating conclusion to this moment. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of the Lord Jesus wasn't doubted. This didn't happen in Jesus' reputation took a hit. This happened in Jesus' reputation got a boost. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was lifted up. It was exalted. It was praised. Why? Because someone tried to treat it like a party trick. Someone tried to treat it like something casual to just be handled in a trivial, dismissive manner. And the demon says, no, 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 Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. I don't know you. And the demon beat the snot out of these seven guys. This is very real. 
This idea of Jesus' authority in this world. This reality for the Christian. And make no mistake, we have that authority. Jesus says, I give you this authority. I send you out. You are my disciples. Make disciples. You are my apostles. Make disciples. But this is not something to be treated casually. This is not something to be treated lightly and dismissively. This is not something... These are men who had been casting out demons. They were traveling exorcists. Just because someone performs a sign and wonder doesn't mean they know Jesus. The demons know Jesus. They know his authority is divine. But I've said that that's not enough. I've said it's not enough. The people knew Jesus' authority was different, right? Jesus, his authority is different than what we're used to. The demons know Jesus' authority is divine, but that's not enough. Each of these groups of people, they, or people and demons, they possessed knowledge, but that's not enough. We're going to play a quick game right now. Who, who knows who this is? You get, oh my goodness, we'll give you the deed to this building if you know who this is. Yeah, I didn't think so. This is the Sultan and Prime Minister of Brunei, Hassanal Bolkaya. And he's the Sultan and Prime Minister he is the social highest authority, is the political highest authority. He is legitimately one of the last absolute monarchs in the world. What this man says in his country is law. I mean, this guy is as high as you can get in the country of Brunei. Who's this next person? This one, I'm, probably people will know. Who's that? Queen, Queen Elizabeth, right? So you know who she is. You know what throne she represents. You know what authority she has claimed to. Hands up if any of you would consider yourselves under the authority of either of these two people. If either of these two people later today came out with an edict, how many of you would be like, yep, that person has authority over me? No, none of us. Some of you got all bristly, right? You're like, uh, Sam, remember the year 1776? No, the queen doesn't have authority over me. So what's, what's the point? And this isn't a perfect comparison. Anytime you try and use people, it's not going to be a comp perfect comparison talking about Jesus. But what's the point? Sherry, can you go back to the first picture, please? You know something's different about that guy, right? You look at that picture, and that's, that's not the number one Yelp-reviewed plumber in his country. You know that person is coming from a different place than the average Joe. You look at that throne room, you look at the crowns, you look at the medals, you look at the guards behind him, you realize and recognize that this is someone different than the average citizen. And then you go to Queen Elizabeth, and you know who she is. You know the throne she has claim to. You know the power and the authority that are hers by name and by position. But you don't consider yourself under the authority of either of them. Thank you, Sherry. And that's the difference between a disciple and not. People knew Jesus' authority was different. Demons knew Jesus' authority was divine. Disciples should know those things. Disciples submit to his authority. Disciples place themselves under Jesus' authority. Earlier this summer, we talked about that word submit and how our culture has made it a bad thing. But the original word submit was a militaristic term that meant to line up under the commanding authority of someone. So disciples know Jesus' authority is different. They know his authority is, is divine, and they line up under that authority. They submit to that authority in everything. James 4, 7, the first half. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Romans 8, 7. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. First half of Ephesians 5.24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, if we are claiming to be disciples, if we are identifying ourselves as disciples of Jesus, we are saying, I recognize this authority is different. I profess that this authority is divine, and I place myself under this authority. I submit to this authority. This is now the authority in my life. It doesn't share its place with anyone or anything else. God is the final authority in my life. That's what discipleship is about. It's not about knowing. It's not about like, hey, I know this. I think this. I believe this. The people knew. Demons knew. You can say that the demons possessed accurate theology to a degree. Theology is what you think about something, what you believe. So you can say, okay, if the demons are saying that Jesus is Lord, they possess a measure of accurate theology. Does that make a demon worth following? Does that make a demon worth listening to just because they are capable of saying something accurate? No. Discipleship is not about knowing. It's about submitting. It's about coming under the authority of Christ. And we see the opposite of this in Jesus' interactions with the people and with the demons. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe this and shudder. It's like I've said multiple times, it's not about stopping at knowing. It's about what comes next, what you do with what you know how you allow it to shape your life, transform your life, drive your life, determine your life. And I want to cycle back to Jesus and the demons as we've looked at this idea of authority and how do we respond to it. I want to look at this very interesting idea or very interesting reality of how Jesus responds to the demons. Because there's a part that thinks, you, and this is more of a modern concept, right? Who knows the phrase, no such thing as bad publicity? Right? All publicity is good publicity. Mm -mm. That's not how Jesus operated. Let's go back to Mark 1, 25 and 34. Verse 25. This is right after the demon. In a crowd full of people, the demon has declared, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Does Jesus reply with, hey, did everybody hear that? Did everybody hear what that demon said? No, how's Jesus reply? Verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. In verse 34, Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Mark 3, 11 through 12. And whenever the unclean, I mean, listen to that, whenever, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus wanted no part of their testimony. Jesus wanted nothing to do with what the demons had to say. He gave them no permission to make his name known. Mm -mm. You don't get to talk about me. You don't get to tell people this. Why? One, because Jesus wanted his actions and what he said to testify to who he was. And two, he knew how people would respond. He knows the fickle hearts of people. And we see it in Mark 3.22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Jesus knows what a false theology or what a false teacher does with even just the smallest grain 
of truth. He knows what happens when something that sounds good, that presents a veneer, that presents, hey, this is accurate, but the person behind it is false. He knows the danger of that and the damage of that, and he wants nothing to do with it. He does not permit them to speak. I mean, listen to these passages. This is not a new idea. And this is something that I believe we see far too frequently today. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. People will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to these deceiving spirits and teachings of demons that come from liars with seared consciences. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yeah, that sounds like that sinful world around us. Or we remember that this is being written to the church. That this isn't being written to the godless culture around them. This is written to the church as an admonition to the church that this is what people will become. Verse 5, they will become all these things. They will become proud, arrogant, abusive. You guys been on social media lately? Don't go. Disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, reckless, brutal. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Having the appearance of godliness. Jesus, you are the Son of Lord. No, 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 you're a demon. You don't get to say that. See, people wrap lies in a veneer of truth. They put in one statement that sounds good enough to hook you in, and then they feed us garbage. And we must be wary of this. We must be aware of this. Sam, isn't that harsh? Avoid such people, have nothing to do with them? That, that sounds a little hard. I mean, look, there are some pastors I like to listen to on TV or their podcast, and I, I know some of what they say is off. But I don't listen to that stuff. I just, you know, I just focus on the good stuff. Right? What's wrong with that? Well, for one, it's not how Jesus behaved. For two, it's not what we just read in Timothy. But for three, let, let's go hypothetical for a moment. Let's pretend. All right? You know I like to use my imagination. So imagine I present you with a nice pie. It's cold. It's a fall day. You've been out raking, yard, like raking the yard for a couple hours. You're wet. You're hungry. You're tired. You come in. I'm like, here's a nice pie. It's warm. It's fresh from the oven. The cinnamon is still crackling on top of the crust. It's got a nice buttery golden to it. Steam is still rising. It's your favorite filling, whatever you want it to be. I cut you a big slice. I say, hey, I've got ice cream to go with it. I've got a glass of cold milk to go with it. You want coffee? i got coffee to go with it. All right, you're starting to drool. You're excited. You grab the fork. You're ready to dig it. Oh, oh. before you take a bite, just real quick, not that this makes a difference, but before you take a bite of this pie, I, I did put in a couple drops of poison. Just a few. 
Guys, just a few. 99% of it is fantastic. I followed the recipe. I didn't take out any ingredients. I just, I just added some poison. Just eat around the poison. Who's still digging into that pie? Nobody. So why do we do the same thing with scriptural teaching? Why, well, I know this, Pat, you know, I know, look, I just don't listen to those sermons. I listen to his good stuff. No. No. We have nothing to do with heresy. We have nothing to do with blasphemy. We have nothing to do with people who don't handle the word of God correctly. Okay, so how? How do we go about this? Sam, that's terrifying. That's daunting. You just gave, you just put such a daunting task before us. Have nothing to do with false teachers. Who? Tell me. I need a list, right? Like I've got my paper ready. G give me a list of people I should avoid. We could do that. And we'd be here till Jesus comes. And we still wouldn't be done. Because every day you're going to get new garbage. I, I mean, with every platform that's available, I I'd probably have an easier time finding garbage to listen to than good stuff to listen to. And I'm certainly not going to know who's on your TV channel and who, what Facebook pages you follow and whose Twitter feed you follow. I, there's no way that we could keep up with every false teacher out there. There's no way we could recognize every liar out there whose conscience has been seared, who's a lover of self seeking to create disciples after themselves. So then what do we do about this? This again is something that I will harp on until the day I die. Let's look at Acts 17. This is one of my favorite groups of people in the Bible. When you talk about uh, accolades in Scripture, when you talk about people being raised up as an example in Scripture, I immediately, there are two things I go to. When you talk about like, okay, what's in the Bible that you would want to describe you? I go to David, a man after God's own heart, and then I go to Acts 17, verses 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So we're looking at the Berean Jews. Verse 11. I mean, look at the power of this verse talking about people. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the, world, the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. That verse, verse 11... These Jews were more noble. These Jews were the example. These, they were the standard. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness. I'm not, I don't want us to become cynical and skeptical, right? I don't want us to automatically go in, all right, I'm going to listen to this, but I bet you're lying to me. No, they received the word with all eagerness. They didn't become bitter. They didn't withdraw. They didn't just hunker down in their house and read the same passage over and over and over again. They received the word with all eagerness. I love that. I want to be someone who receives the word with all eagerness, who pursues learning. One of the things I try and do regularly is read by people I don't know. Read books from cultures I'm not a part of. Read books from, from people who have lived different lives than I have. I want to learn. I want us to be people who receive the word with all eagerness. We are pursuing understanding. But then what did they do that makes them more noble? Examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Their standard for truth wasn't, well, it made me feel good. Their standard for truth wasn't, well, that was fun to listen to. Their standard for truth wasn't, well, the rest of the people around me seemed to like it. 
so I'm good with it. No, their standard was, okay, I'm going to receive what you have to say with eagerness. I'm going to show up to the synagogues. I'm going to sit and listen to you, and then I'm going to go examine the scriptures to make sure that this is so. Their standard of truth was God's word. And what's it say? It doesn't say they went to examine one verse in scripture. It says they examined the scriptures. They looked at it as a whole. They looked at what they had. They didn't pull things out of context. They didn't allow things to be pulled out of context. They took what they were taught, what they were told, and they immediately went and held it to the standard of Scripture. And then what's it say? Because this is, again, I don't want you to be cynical and skeptical. What's it say? It says, many of them therefore believed. So the hope and the prayer is that we find ourselves eagerly listening to teachers who are teaching us truth eagerly listening to teachers who are teaching us what God's Word says, who are opening Scripture and they are sticking to Scripture and passing on what God is teaching them. That's the hope. That's the prayer. But they didn't examine Scriptures once a month. They didn't examine, well, I have a Bible study in a couple weeks. Then we'll, No, they examined Scriptures daily. God's Word saturated their lives. The most common question, I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating, the most common question ever since I began teaching here five or six years, six years ago, Ever since I began teaching here six years ago, classes, the most common question I've been asked is, okay, how do you know when someone says something that's wrong? You listen to so many podcasts, you read so many books, how do you know when someone says something that's wrong? My answer has been the same all six years, because I know the truth. You recognize a lie by being so intimately familiar with the truth that anything that deviates just the slightest bit screams out to you. So that when someone tries to come and tell me, well, Jesus wasn't really God, right? Didn't he lay that aside? No, get out of here. I'm not going to listen to that. Well, God wants you to win the lottery, right? Isn't that, I mean, that's why you give. So that you, No, get out of here with that. We know the truth. We receive the word with eagerness and we examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. I will never be bothered by, if you guys fact check me on sermons. I will be devastated if you don't. Oh my goodness. I, I mean, I hope, my prayer is, I, I mean, literally, daily my prayer is, Lord, help me to understand so that I can teach. So I pray that I'm understanding, but don't, I, I'm not perfect. I, I'm not infallible. I'm human. Don't ever assume that I have the same authority as Scripture does. I would be so bothered if you came to me and you were like, I have always taken every single thing you said as truth. I have never once checked scripture to see if that verse was what you said it was. Nope. Just whatever you say, that goes. That would trouble me way more than someone who said, hey, I listened to your sermon, and then I went back and I read all the verses for myself, and yeah, I really like that point. Good. That's what I want. That's what Paul lays out, is these Jews were more noble. This was how they handled what they were told and what they did with that. It's not just about the knowledge, it's about what you do with it. The people knew. Demons knew. The Jews in Thessalonica knew. The Jews in Berea did something with that. Disciples do something with what they know. My prayer is that we wouldn't be like the people who, oh yeah, Jesus' authority is clearly different. Cool, I'm going to go about my way. That we wouldn't be like the demons. Well, Jesus' authority is clearly divine, but, I mean, I'm still my own boss. No. I want us to be people who know that his authority is different, who know that his authority is divine, and who submit to it entirely. 
who hold up God's word as the only standard in our life. There is no other document that has ever been written that should be placed even remotely close to this Bible. This is God's word. This is what defines us. What God said, what God calls us to, what Jesus calls us to, the model we have in Christ. That is what a disciple does. A disciple takes the step beyond just knowing. Please be people who do the same. Please let this church be a church of people who go beyond knowing. Because what we see in the people and we see in the demons is knowing is never meant to be the final destination. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. And I thank you for two things. I thank you that we can know you, but we can't know all of you. You are infinite. You are omniscient. You are omnipresent. God, I joyfully declare that I cannot wrap my mind around your relationship with time. I can't. I cannot comprehend your relationship with existing outside of before time, independent of time. That, that blows my mind. I get a headache when I try and think of it, and I thank you for that. But I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. I thank you that you sent Jesus. I thank you that you give us your word. I thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to indwell in us so that we can know you and understand you and grow in that. And so, God, please let us never be content with just knowing. Take us beyond. Take us deeper. Take us out further and further into following you, into trusting you, into being molded and refined by you. Let us not be a church content to listen to lovers of self, content with arrogance, content with brutality. Let us not be content with the appearance of godliness. Teach us to pursue you in everything. Teach us to submit to you entirely. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.